February is Black History Month, and this morning we're looking to the past to find a way forward toward understanding and how we can be change makers in reducing racial division. This morning we welcome sociologist George Yancey to the program. George is a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University, specializing in race, ethnicity, and religions. He is the author of Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. And good morning, George. Morning. How y'all doing? Good. Wow. Good. Thanks for joining us. So sure. let's talk a little bit about what you mean and talk about colorblindedness. You know, a lot of people say that they're colorblind, but mm-hmm. why is that not necessarily maybe a good thing in your opinion? Well, I understand the uh, sentiment behind a lot of people saying they're colorblind. Mm-hmm. You know, what they're saying is they wouldn't mistreat you because of your race. Right. But since we live in a society where that I would call is racialized, in other words, my race matters, and that there are problems connected to that, then to be colorblind is to ignore those problems. And I'll just give just one example. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's a ton of examples. We know from research that if you're a black or Hispanic and you apply for a job, you're less likely to get called back simply because you're black or Hispanic. And we know this through audit studies, mm-hmm. where, where you have a person with a black-sounding name or a black-sounding name apply for the job and a white-sounding name, and the white-sounding name gets called back for jobs, other things being equal. So mm-hmm. we inevitably have to ignore those problems if we're going to just say we're going to ignore our race. And, of course, for people of color, that's not really an acceptable position to have. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the alternative maybe to still treating people fairly but understanding their experience? Yeah. Uh, well, this is why I pushed the idea of collaborative conversation because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, as you probably know, I'm not in the other camp of anti-racism either. It has its own set of problems. Right. I think what we what we don't have in our society is real conversations where we listen to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we try to win uh, and we try to yeah, score points true. rather than trying to understand where people are coming from because I think a lot of times we can find answers that doesn't give us everything but satisfies us and satisfies a lot of other people. But rather than doing that, we want to win the fight or win the debate. And, mm. and I, I, you know, while we should debate these issues out, I think we should have a different perspective. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, George, in what ways do you think that the church is really kind of falling short when it comes to racial healing these days? Well, unfortunately, the church sounds a lot like the rest of the world when mm. we should. Yeah. You know, if this, if this is a problem that has a morality basis to it, and I believe that it does, then we should be sounding different. And I, I actually believe, and, and I articulate this in my book, that there is a theological basis for class conversations as opposed to colorblindness or anti-racism. That if we, if we seriously take what we believe about human depravity and the need to treat others as image bearers, then truly, you know, talk with people and trying to find best solutions for everyone is the way we should be going. And unfortunately, the church doesn't always need to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of something maybe you've talked through with other people, an issue or, or something that is a I sans paper point, I guess, between the different groups where you've come to an agreement and were able to really find some healing, find some way forward? Well, I mean, I you know, this this happens on an individual way. Uh, level. I mean, I won't go into details, but sometimes when I have to work things through with my with my boys or with my wife, you know, we try to find ways in which we can be in the middle of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. because we, we care about each other. That's right, yeah. And, and I also wonder, you know, whether some of this is because we don't care about people we disagree with. 
you know, we don't care if they if they feel like they've been ripped off. Uh, so, so you know, we see this on a personal level. On, on an institutional level, unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often. I, you know, I can, I, I'll give you an example of a problem. I think that there is a solution. Immigration. Mm-hmm. I think there's a solution in between people who are more open border-ish and people who want to build a wall. I think there's a solution looking at what we could do with the dreamers and yet still have security. I think, that, I think there's a both-and solution in there. But what happens is that that issue becomes used as a political football rather than as a way we can find solutions. Yes, so I don't have all the details, but I, you know, I've heard enough people from both sides to say, hey, you know, you can get most of what you want as long as you give them most of what they want, and, and then we can move forward in that. But unfortunately, that's not happening. Right. Mm-hmm. What are some ways to, to tackle that? I mean, it's such a difficult thing these days, George, to tackle those that are seeking political advancement and those that are really wanting to do the right thing. Um, but I don't know. You know, it's so frustrating to just say, let's just get the job done and not worry about who's going to get what power. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. It is frustrating. And, I, and I've been frustrated myself quite often. Uh, you know, one thing that I've been trying to do is learn how to not only engage in collaborative conversation myself, but to teach others and how to do that. Because mm-hmm. part of my vision is that, you know, because I think this is a solution for the entire society. I think it should start in the church, ideally. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I've been working on how I can teach churches on how to engage in this sort of different type of mentality and, and some other Christian organizations with the hope that if we do this right it, as Christians, and other people will note, and then they'll want to, uh, you know, show us up <laughs> and, and show that, you know, and which is which is great, you know. It's, it's sort of like when Paul says, hey, if people are, like, doing good things and to show me up, I forget exactly where that is. Uh, that That's great. Mm-hmm. So if we start doing this right and the rest of the world says, hey, you know, we can do better than those Christians. We're going to have good, honest conversations, too. Then all the more better. Let's start in the church. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So what's the platform for doing that? How do you bring this up in church? I mean, we do have divisions in our yeah. churches, yeah. I mean, that are pretty significant on certain issues. I mean, how would you even begin to have a dialogue about some of these things? Well, what I've done with some churches, and I'm working on I'm trying to work on uh, material that can make more widespread available. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've just break up into small groups, and I get them prompt. And after people have been trained on how to engage in cloud conversation, then I have people go into these groups and engage in cloud conversation. So that they, they get training and in the practice, the skill development of talking through issues where you have disagreement, but learning how to appreciate other perspectives. And I think that, you know, that and we know from research that skill development is a critical part of any sort of diversity program, and we don't have that. And all you do is you're just talking at people. So that's been sort of my methodology that I've been wanting to try to incorporate more. And I'm still working on it, uh, okay. but I, I feel that that's, that's the way forward for us, to learn how to have these sort of conversations so that when the next issue comes up, that's not a problem, that's a real issue, we know how to talk to each other rather than talk past each other. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, George, let's go there. Let's uh, Give us some tips. Give us some ways that we can have more healthy conversations with those that are different than we are. Um, what okay. are some ways that we can do that? Well, one of the first things is to, to learn how to engage in active listening. Mm-hmm. And that's when you listen for comprehension and not for debate. And so when I do my interviews, for example, I did research on atheists 
about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And not being an atheist, I was not there to argue with the atheists. I was there to learn why they believe what they believe. Yeah. And so I actually listened. I listened to what they said, and then I would paraphrase it in my own words and ask them, is that what you mean? Mm. That way I know exactly, uh, or they correct me. Either I know what they mean by that, even though I'm not them, or they correct me, and I keep doing that until I, I, I conceptualize what they mean by what they're saying. Because if I'm going to disagree with someone, I should at least disagree with what they're actually saying and not what I say that they're saying. Oh, yeah. that's really so, so that's one, one component, one tool. Uh, I would say another tool is learn how to communicate with people in ways they can hear. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of talk about trigger and trigger warning and stuff like that, and some of it's overblown. But there are ways in which we can trigger people in ways that they can no longer hear us because they feel so defensive that they can no longer hear us. And this is a hmm. psychological reality. Psychologists have shown this to be the case. And so I know that when I talk to certain audiences, if I approach things certain ways, they will turn off and they won't walk out of the room, but they no longer can hear me. Mm-hmm. We need to hear people out so we know when we say things that turn them away that they can no longer hear us. That way we can get through to communicating with them rather than talking at them. Mm-hmm. I just think this is so helpful for Mm -hmm. all of us, George. And, you know, this is Black History Month. And Mm -hmm. uh, before we let you go, I'd just really like to hear uh, something from Black History that that you have taken away and really are using and is beneficial for us to know so we can understand your experience. Yeah, so as an African-American, you know, I, you know, I know my history and know where I come from. And it's, and it's not that my history determines who I am, right. but it's helped shape who I am. Mm-hmm. I can't get away from some of the shaping power. Uh, I'll just give you this little bit of personal black history. Uh, my grandfather may have been the smartest person I ever knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, without a high school education, he was working in the military on very complicated uh, mechanics. He actually developed a computer a uh, homemade computer when I was a kid, and that was a wow. long time ago. Wow. Uh, you know, he, he had the idea, and he could never do anything about it because he was a poor black man. He had the idea of a weed whacker, mm. you know, and he had the mechanical abilities to put one together, but being an African-American, he could not, you know, do that and, and get a patent at, at his time of life. Mm. So that's my personal black history. Does that shape me? Yeah, I mean, obviously it had been different if I came from a family that had more means because I had a, fa- a grandfather who have had, you know, the intelligence and the wherewithal to have done those sort of things. But it doesn't determine who I am. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's a difference between it shapes who I am, shapes some of my opportunities, but it doesn't determine who I am because who I am is still a child of God, and, and I have had some successes in life uh, despite those sort of humble beginnings. And so I think that that's a good way to look at black history uh, mm-hmm. for, for all of us, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, we're fools. We, we think that it doesn't shape where, where we're at, you know, whether we're black or not. But it doesn't determine us. Yes. And I think that that is a healthier way to look at it. Definitely. That's excellent. Yeah, that's yeah. a great reminder for us. That is George Yancey, and he's got the book called Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to color blindedness and anti-racism. George, thank you, brother, mm-hmm. for joining us. We so appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me.